0: Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 14 this evening. Genesis 22, 1 to 14. Tonight as we study God's Word, we face a a surprising and even shocking event in the life of Abraham and Isaac, which may leave us scratching our head with wonder and questions. And yet we are on holy ground as we come to this word, for it is God's word. Let me invite you to hear it from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. This is the word of God. After these things... God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, "Abraham, my father." And he said, "Hear my, my son." He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there And laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horn's And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father, grant that these words, this Your Word, would revive our souls and make wise the simple and give joy to the heart and enlighten our eyes in the knowledge of Christ for Your glory and for our eternal good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we see the testing of Abraham's faith, and we see Abraham's obedience, and we see God's provision for him in a strange story. F.B. Beyer said about this so long as men live in this world, they will turn to this story with unwaning interest. There is only one scene in history by which it is surpassed that where the great father gave his Isaac to a death from which there was no deliverance we want to think about Abraham and Isaac we want to think as well about God the father and God the son and God's provision let me highlight three things with you from the passage and we'll walk through it together Uh, In verses 1 and 2, we encounter the problem of God's ways, where you have this perplexing trial and test of Abraham's faith. Then in verses 3 to 8, you see the pathway of God's servant as Abraham goes about the business of being obedient. And we see there, uh, we will see the empowerment by which he was obedient to this perplexing way. And in verses 9 to 14, we see the relief of God's provision as a substitute is provided. So those three things, the problem of God's ways, the pathway of God's servant, and the relief of God's provision. Verses 1 and 2, let me invite you to give your attention to the problem of God's ways. Here, God tests Abraham. Now, by way of context, remember that it was just in the last chapter in 21 that we learned of the the birth, at long last, of Isaac. And yet Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael, but God protected him. Ishmael was banished, and Isaac lived. Likewise, we saw in chapter 21 that outward oppression, the potential of it, by King Abimelech. Uh, was stopped in fact Abimelech sought a covenant with peace with Abraham and not just Abraham but for his children with Abraham's children with Isaac and so what you have in Abraham is is a man who's finally received the long promised he waited decades for this the long-awaited son now settled in the land of promise at peace with his potential enemies outside the home The banishment of the persecutor from within the home, no threats within, no threats without, everything seems right, and for a time, Isaac grows up, and yet... Here probably another ten years have passed or so because by the time you get to here, he's now a, a boy or a young man. The word could be used of a of a young man of military age. So previously he had been three, he'd been weaned, he'd been protected. Now we're talking maybe perhaps a decade longer after that or more. And then something happens. As it turns out, there's still one threat. And it comes from a completely unexpected place. It comes from God Himself. This is like it's like one of those suspense movies where, you know, you're following the hearer throughout it through his dangers and through his adventures, and he's got this band of brothers with him. And then just when you think the crisis is over, nearing the end of the story, and you think all his companions are with him, one of them suddenly threatens to undo everything. The hero doesn't expect it and gets completely blindsided. I I think perhaps that's how Abraham must have felt. All is at peace. My son is growing. Uh, We've got promises that are in the process of being fulfilled. And now, verse 2, God says to it, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, Whom you love and I want you to go to the land of Moriah and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering I want you to sacrifice him there Abraham doesn't have the benefit of verse 1 that you and I do he doesn't know God is just testing his faith all he hears is the command go and so what is so striking here is how to our ears probably absurd it seems I mean after all these decades he's finally got the promised son the son through whom the covenant people are going to come and somewhere in that line of covenant people is going to be the promised Messiah the promised redeemer in whom all the nations will be blessed and now God's Command seems to contradict God's promise God's command to sacrifice him seems to contradict God's prior word to him it's as though God said I want you to take all the promises that I gave to you in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 and in other places and I want you to lay them all on the back of Isaac and I want you to slaughter him he's to be a burnt offering Burn burnt offering of Leviticus 1 is wholly devoted to the Lord. Nothing is held back. The priest in the Levitical offerings, the priest doesn't get to keep part of it. The worshiper doesn't get to keep part of it. All of it is offered to the Lord. And God says, I want Isaac to be offered to me. Not merely in service of me in life, but I want him in service of me in death. And you can't help feeling, I think, some of the pain that Abraham must have felt, even as the words are being spoken to him. Abraham, take your son. You can imagine Abraham saying, oh Lord, anything but my son. Now Abraham, I want you to take your son. Your only Son. Now you and I know he's had Ishmael, but of course Ishmael has shown himself to be the persecutor. Ishmael is banished. Ishmael is not the line of the promise. Isaac is the only one living at home. And for the last 10 years, Abraham has been raising him and training him and loving him. And I want you to take him, your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, he says. I know he's precious to you, God says. I know your heart is knit with him. I know he is dear to you and that's the one I want you to take. And so we have to ask the question, inevitably we ask the question, how can the Lord ask this of him? And is it, as so many have asked, is it is it fundamentally wrong for the Lord to ask this? Well, let me give just a couple of responses to that first we might ask ourselves, is it wrong for the Lord to take our children away from us and from this life and to himself before he takes us as the parents of those children? Those who know that experience, something of that pain, even of children they have not yet Met must know something of the pain Abraham has felt. And yet, those who have been through that, so many of you could testify that you, like Job, would say, the Lord did nothing wrong. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And blessed be the name of the Lord. But we can say more than this. How can the Lord command the death of Isaac at the hand of a man? Well, he can and he did. And we might ask the question this way as it was asked previously in Genesis. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Is there anything wrong here? No, for the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. And we are all liable to death, even capital punishment for sin, for its wage is death. Now, to be sure... The emphasis of this passage is decidedly not that Isaac is being punished for some sin of his or Abraham is being punished for some sin of his. That's not in view here, and yet death would not be unjust in that scenario. We Christians confess that at any moment we deserve to die, and every moment we get in life is a gift we do not deserve. The Lord has sovereign rights over life and death, our life and death but we can say more and press the question harder how can god the father ask isaac's own father to slay the boy and here i say i can't imagine that test of faith myself, and praise god i have not had to face it I confess that had I been Abraham, I do not know what I would have done. I admit I probably would have turned to my own will and not gone with the Father's will in weakness of faith. Now relief is at hand here. We know the rest of the story we've already read to 13 and 14. But all Abraham knows is that God seemed to strike a dagger into his very heart with every word he spoke. However, again, don't turn this passage into an accusation against Abraham saying that, as some have said, he had begun to love God's gift, Isaac, more than he had begun to love God. There's no word in this text of that kind of failure on his part. And if you love God, you will love others, even your own family. But certainly, as Lincoln Duncan says, when he left his father's country by faith in Genesis 12, we learned that Abraham did love God more than his father. And now we also learn that he loved God more than his own son. And you can almost hear Jesus whispering here, Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. But don't turn that into an accusation against Abraham. There was no sin here spoken of. But God says, I want you to offer him as a burnt offering to me. How perplexing then this trial. And how perplexing our trials. Now admittedly, to leap from Abraham to us is a a leap. I mean, you and I are not in Abraham's position. We're not the head of the covenant of grace of the Old Testament. There are differences in our trials, no doubt. But there is a lot that's generically similar. We face times when God's ways with us seem to contradict God's assurances to us. When when what we are experiencing seems to contradict God's expressions of love for us. Or when the words of his promises to us and the providences of our circumstances seem to conflict and we throw up our hands and say lord what are you doing i mean think for instance of peter and jesus let me a couple examples peter and jesus peter hears the word of god from heaven about jesus this is my son whom i love with him i am well pleased listen to him later jesus asks peter who do you say that i am And he confesses, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You have the words of eternal life. So you've got these bold truths and promises and assurances that he can hang his hat on. And then towards the end, Peter hears Jesus say that he must go to Jerusalem and be killed. And he can't reconcile that in his head. He says, no, Lord. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God he can't get his head wrapped around it God loves you you're the Messiah, the Redeemer the Savior in whom we have eternal life and you're going to go die and be put to death the promises and the commands seem at odds or take a different example think of Jesus and Lazarus Jesus hears that Lazarus is dying John 11 and he's asked to come and help him, heal him And he stays two extra days where he is before he goes. And in John 11, verse 6, it says uh, that he stayed two extra days. The verse just prior in John 11, verse 5 says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loves Lazarus. He loves Lazarus' sisters. He loves them all. And he waits. And he stays. And he arrives after Lazarus is dead. And the sisters say to him, Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died. In other words, Lord, it is as though you killed him yourself. But you say that you love him. How perplexing at times God's promises, God's assurances, and God's commands and our circumstances God is as Ralph Davis says not always clear and it doesn't matter he says how much reformed theology you know or whether you personally know R.C. Sproul (laughs) there will be times when you cannot make head nor tail of what God is doing times when God seems so strange he doesn't even seem himself to you And verse 1 and 2 help us then. They help us. They cushion the blow when that's our experience. We're going to have problems with God's ways. Now the second thing we see is the pathway of God's servant. And that pathway in verses 3 to 8 is obedience. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning. Now again... If you were given this task, do you think you would start early? I think I'd wake up if I had slept at all in agony of soul, roll over, throw the pillow over my head, crying out and telling God, I can't do it. But we see here Abraham's rock solid trust and faith in God that led to his obedience to the direct command of God to him. And so what did he do? He saddled his donkey. He took his two young men. He put Isaac on it. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. And they went to the place that God told him. Now, let me ask you this. Where did Abraham get, we might say, the power to trust God in this? To not turn back after day one on that journey? Not turn back after day two on that journey Not to slay himself, to be spared slaying his own son. Where did he get the empowerment to not falter through weakness or confusion? What was the source of his power? Let me suggest two things at least. His past and his future. Or the past and the future. One source of this would have been the past. His past experience of God's faithfulness to him. Perhaps... That first night, laying in bed, looking at the stars as he slept, the stars that spoke to the promise that was to come through Isaac perhaps, he remembered that in all God's dealings with him, time and again, he, Abraham, had messed up. He'd messed up with Pharaoh. He'd messed up with the Hagar plan. He'd messed up the first time around with Abimelech. When he prostituted his wife, He took the handmaid. And yet in every case, from his own perspective, though he put at risk the fulfillment of the promise of a son through Sarah, through whose offspring every nation will be blessed, yet every time that promise was put at risk from a human perspective, God came to the rescue. And God made it right. And God delivered him. And God preserved that seed and that promise. And not only had God provided to him in his failures... But God had brought life out of the deadness of Sarah's womb. She was well past the years of childbearing. Yet God brought life in her death. Abraham had learned over time, despite his own failures and his own finiteness, despite his own errors and his own inability, that he could trust God to do what God had promised he would do. I think that was, on the one hand, one source of his power to get up and obey. God was going to work this out somehow. Now, I think another source of his power is that he realized uh, when he thought, was what he realized when he thought it through. And that looks to the future. Notice in verse 5 what he says. Then Abraham said to his young man, After they arrived on the mountain, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. We will go. We will worship. We will come to you again. Was he deceiving them so that he could get away with it and not be stopped? You know, the senile old man needs needs to be stopped. No. He believed Isaac was the promised one. So did he now think the Lord was going to go back on his promise? No. He reasoned the Lord would still fulfill his promise through Isaac. How? If he's dead, how? Here's how. He reasoned, Though I offer him to the Lord in death, the Lord will bring him back to life. Now, I'm not making that up. We're not left guessing about that. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19. You want to turn there. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back Abraham believed the promises about Isaac and he knew that Isaac was not ultimately lost and the promises were not ruined should he do what God commanded him to do He was convinced that whatever he gave up to God and for God, he would get back in God's timing. And God would accomplish his purposes. This is the source, I think, in part at least of the power for him to walk in obedience through hardship. Let me give you four examples of that in other places. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 goes on to speak of other saints. And it says, verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Not in the time of their life they had faith, But they had not yet received what was promised. And facing terrible obstacles, yet they persevered. They had power to be obedient, to proclaim Christ, to own Him, walk with Him through suffering. Why? They waited in hope. They believed in the resurrection. Verse 35. They even refused to be released. To recant their professions. So that what? They might rise again to a better life. They believed in the resurrection that helped them. That's true for us. This is the hope which strengthens us to walk through our own testing. When everything is stripped away from us now, by the God who says, You are my beloved child, you are a co heir with Jesus of all things, then nothing good and nothing promised to us is stripped away forever. Let me give you another example. In Matthew 19, when Peter, speaking for the disciples, said to Jesus, We have left everything to follow you. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, this is chapter 19, 28, In the new world, or at the regeneration, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands... For my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Believing this God and his promises gives power to lose everything here. You get it all back. This, in a third example, is, I think, how King David faced his own suffering, even when it was God's discipline of him for his own sin. You remember that God afflicted David's infant son after David's sin with Bathsheba. And as that infant son was dying, David fasted and wept and cried out to God as any loving parent you could expect would. And when God took David's infant son, he washed and he ate and he worshiped the Lord. And his advisors were puzzled by this. And he explained to them, quote, Now that he is dead, can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. He was strengthened for obedience to his duties as a king and, and for the worship of the living God by the promise of reunion, of getting back what God had taken There's a fourth example. This is how Jesus endured the cross. He endured the cross, how? For the joy set before him. What joy? He was going to rise to glory and more than that, he was going to be the source of the rising to glory of a multitude no man can count from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. And the hope of that resurrection brought power to carry him through costly obedience today that's where we need to find strength in God's past faithful dealings and God's promises of future resurrection and that hope now that's the second thing and the final thing is this we see then in verses 9 to 14 the relief of God's provision the relief of God's provision now of course at verses 9 and 10 there's no relief there in fact, in verses 9 and 10, the narrative kind of slows down. There's, a, there's an and between every phrase which invites you to linger over every expression. They came to the place of which God told him, verse 9, and Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood and then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son Now I can't imagine the tears that must have been falling from his face believing in the resurrection does not make you a stoic about the pain and agony that he was about to experience in separation from his own son at his own hand we don't know how old Isaac was as I said he was old enough to carry the wood upon which he would be sacrificed so he's probably a young teenager which many suggest indicates that we should not assume Abraham bound him against his will a 100 year old man against a spry strong, young lad of military age does not necessarily happen because Abraham overpowered him. It is possible Isaac himself agreed. The text is silent, I realize, about that. Though uh, he does carry the wood upon which he will be sacrificed and many have there seen Jesus himself carrying the wood upon which he would be crucified on the cross. But then... Abraham takes the knife to slaughter his son and then the relief comes. Verse 11, the angel cries out, stops him. Abraham, don't do it. And having stopped him, verse 13, Abraham lifts his eyes and looks. Behold, a ram caught in a thicket with horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of in place of his son. So Here we see God's provision, God's provision. Now we see it, and let me highlight three ways, and this will be the end. We see this provision of God through a ram. We see it through Mount Moriah, the place, and we see it through the pattern of the father. Let me explain those. First, we see it in the provision of a substitute in death. A ram takes the place of the son. A ram God provided to be offered instead of, or in place of as a substitute for Isaac that Isaac might go free in this way Isaac is not a type or foreshadowing of Christ as much as he is a type or foreshadowing of Israel an Israel which needs Christ as the substitute like we do and God provides a substitute his son for us and he dies for our sins instead of us dying for them and why? because one man must be wholly devoted to the Lord nothing kept back in life and in death in the place of a whole host of humanity if humanity is to be saved one must be given for many one must receive what the many deserve, that the many may receive what the one deserves. Death for life, life for death. Blessing for curse, curse for blessing. Mercy for judgment, judgment for mercy. There's a substitute. That's the first thing. That's the provision. Secondly, we see God's provision in the place of this substitution. It's, an, it's interesting. Verse 14, he calls the name of that place the Lord will provide for on the mount it shall be provided. On what mount are they? Mount Moriah. Where is that? There are only two direct references to it in the whole Bible. One is here and the other is Second Chronicles. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. What's that talking about? This is a little Israelite history. It was on Mount Moriah that the angel of death that had been sent by God against Jerusalem was withheld. The hand was stayed by divine command. And so there on Mount Moriah, in thanks, David... Buys the threshing floor of this guy named Ornan, the Jebusite. And on that threshing floor, he offers sacrifices of thanksgiving that God spared Jerusalem. Well, it is there on the threshing floor of Ornan that Solomon built the temple, where tens and hundreds of thousands of sacrifices were offered to God in substitute for sinners. And Mount Moriah is where it's Jerusalem, where Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world appeared outside the gate on our behalf. There's a place of substitution provided. But finally we see God's provision in the pattern of love. This place, as another put it, isn't called Abraham obeyed. This place is called Yahweh provides We said Isaac may be more a type or pattern of Israel than of Christ. But Abraham here surely is a type or pattern of God the Father. What God requires of us, God provides. Is an offering without blemish needed? He gives his own perfect, holy, unstained, free from defect son, acceptable to God. This is what the Father did for us. He sent his son his only son, his unique son, Jesus, whom he loves and sacrificed him on Mount Moriah that those who believe in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. And who is it that killed this son? One answer to that, of course, is wicked men Who hated him with evil intentions put him to death. Of course. But another answer to that question is who killed this son? I and my sins killed this son. If I am to be saved. But another answer to that question is this. On the cross it was the hand of the father who raised the knife against his son. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him he has put him to grief and that tells you much about the love of god the father as my old pastor put it abraham's love for his son is a pale shadow of the father's love for his son and the heavenly father is saying here when you see my son ascend calvary don't you dare think that you love him more than i do And when you see Abraham's hand raised to slay his son, the father is saying, don't you think that I'm some passive standing by witness from a distance of what is happening on Calvary? I am the one who is bringing this to be and I'm doing it because the only way that you can be saved is if my own precious son is given on your behalf and in your place. What God kept Abraham from doing, God himself did. Such is his love for us. Christian History Magazine told of the time when Martin Luther was reading Genesis 22 at family devotions. When he had finished, his wife Katie exclaimed, I do not believe it. God would not have treated his son like that. And Luther turned to her and said, But Katie, he did. And he did it for us. Let's worship him. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks that you spared not your own son, but gave him up for us all. We bless you and thank you that you loved us in that way that we might know your everlasting love before your face and even with your Son forever. Oh, bless us. Oh, help us to rejoice and boast in the Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.